Good morning to everybody. My name is Brett. I am pastor of this house. It's good to see all of you, but especially those who are with us fairly new, whether it's your first day or whether you've been here for a minute and yet you have not become a member. We are glad you, you are here and you've made us, at least your church, home for an hour today. Before we get in the word, let me reemphasize what has already been said. We really want you to come to our prophetic gathering. It's going to be a great moment. And I realize many of you may have never experienced anything like somebody speaking to you, thus says the Lord, or having heard something from God himself. But we believe our God speaks, and we believe he wants you to hear, and we believe he most often speaks through individuals, but sometimes in the quietness of your devotional life, he'll talk to you as well. Passages jump off the page as you're reading, and we want you to to be skilled at how to interpret his voice and how to hear and know his voice. And that's the only reason we do this, that we may help the body understand how to love God better and to relate to him more. So please, come out Friday night. It's free. I think you'll enjoy it. And anything that might be said, I think, will benefit you. Turn with me over to the book of 1 Kings chapter 19. And today we're going to continue our series on our core values as a congregation. They are five, evangelism, lordship, discipleship, leadership development, and family. Evangelism, lordship, discipleship, leadership development, and family. These five things are the drivers behind all we do, and they are the things through which we take all of our activity, who we hire, our resources financially, to make sure we are staying on track with what God has called us to do and whom he's called us to be. 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 19 through 21. It's the account of Elijah choosing a man named Elisha to be his successor. Verses 19 through 21 of 1 Kings 19. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, while he was plowing with the 12, with the 12 pairs of oxen before him, and he with the twelve. And Elijah passed over to him and threw his mantle on him. He left the oxen, verse 20, and ran after Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my mother and father, then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? Verse 21. So he returned from following him and took the pair of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the implements of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. And he arose and followed Elijah and ministered to him. Lord, help us as we study your word. The title of the message today is Discipleship. And I've chosen this passage because it is an oft-overlooked passage with respect to what it means to follow God and how you do that in letting other people help lead you to him faster, letting you use somebody else's life as a springboard for your progress. The backdrop to this passage is that Elijah, probably the preeminent prophet in terms of deeds and prophetic utterances in all of Scripture, you've got some really prominent human beings that said some great stuff. Jeremiah, whole book. Isaiah, whole book. And probably more in the book of Isaiah about the Messiah than any other prophet. God revealed to him some things that were amazing. But we don't have one miracle from, from Isaiah. 
We don't have one miracle from Jeremiah. It's not to say that their ministries were somehow insufficient. They were, they were as great as they could be. But God calls certain people to do certain things at certain times. And Elijah was just different. Not only did he speak the word of God, but miracles flowed through his life like water out of a pipe. It was amazing. He was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. And the northern kingdom was different than the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom was called Judah. The northern kingdom, Israel. They were of one people but two nations. Separated because a king named Solomon did some things that he wasn't wasn't supposed to do. And God said, I'm going to take ten tribes from you. In the successor generation, he did so. And that was what we now call the northern kingdom. Ten tribes to the north in a city called Samaria in an area called Samaria. To the south was the major kingdom of worship and where God allowed his presence to be seen and felt and heard there in the temple in Jerusalem in the region of Judea. The northern kingdom, though, because they went to the north and wanted to make sure they kept their major population base, decided to set up their own institution of worship rather than having the people who were genetically tied to the folks in the south run down to the south and worship at the temple and be a part of the regular prescribed worship. They thought, boy, if our people come from the north to the south, they may not ever come back. And so they set up their own God to the north. Bad idea, real bad idea. The northern kingdom never had a good king. They had one king that just wasn't bad, but they never had a good one. Jehu was the only king that wasn't bad. And to the north, idolatry was the order of the day. They hardly ever worshiped Jehovah, hardly ever. It was the unusual thing when they had a moment of clarity. Elijah was a prophet to the north. During his prophetic ministry, uh, kings that, even though the the northern kingdom never had a good king, the king who was on the throne at this point was, he was the one that every other king was compared to when they talked about how bad kings were. His name was Ahab. He was the worst. He was so bad. And he had a wife named Jezebel. Now, Jezebel, she was a manipulative ploy and tool to get Ahab to do what she wanted him to do and to turn the kingdom toward her, her aim. She was not a part of the people of Israel. She was a part of another kingdom, and Ahab had married her in order to align his kingdom with that one. She came in with her gods and imported them to Israel. Now, Jezebel gets a bad rap, and for good cause. Good cause. She, she wasn't right at all. But somehow the name gets carried over and stays in a particular gender. Which is wrong. It's a spirit. It's not a gender. I know a lot of men with the spirit of Jezebel. So be careful that we categorize something according to a particular gender. This woman had some issues. She needed God real bad. And not only was she not accepting God, she was pushing away and trying to kill anybody who did worship him. Elijah was sent to this king. Realizing how bad the things were in Israel, he came to Ahab in chapter 17 of 1 Kings and said, by the way, it's not going to rain till I tell it to. Bye. Walked in his, his, his palace and left. 
after he said that. Everybody thought that boy crazy. I mean, who, who is Elijah? Nobody had ever heard of him. He wasn't a son of a prophet. He hadn't been to a school with the prophet. Who was Elijah? We don't even know where he came from. It just says he was a Tishbite, meaning from the family of Tish, but we're not quite sure where he came from. Six months later, it hadn't rained. What was that guy's, what was that guy's name? Eh, probably nothing. A year it hadn't rained. Listen, get me that dude on the phone. I don't know what, anybody got him on speed dial. After two years, they sent the CIA, Navy SEALs, Rangers out looking for this fella. After three years, everybody was mad. Where is he? And they finally find him. And he says, okay, you want to meet me? Meet me on Mount Carmel. And we're going to see whose God is God. Because the Lord has judged the nation because you all won't worship right. You won't worship the true God. And you brought in all these idolatrous practices. And he's trying to get your attention. All he wants to do is repent. He wants to rain down rain on you. But he won't do it unless you repent. This is supposed to be a wake-up call. So if you want me, you're going to get all of me and my God. Let's get to the mountain and see whose God is God. You sacrifice to your God, I'll sacrifice to my God, and whosoever God answers by fire from heaven, he is God. It, 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 was, it was a high noon fist fight. They calling out the pistol. We're going to go te a te. Elijah shows up, prophets of Baal show up, and sure enough, he says, prophets of Baal, y'all go first. Y'all sacrifice, do what you want to do. And so they sacrifice their animals, and this is early in the morning. They sacrifice their animals. They call on their God. Their God does nothing because he's not God. And, and, and it, Elijah be, begins to talk a little lip. He says, uh, maybe he's hard of hearing. Cry a little louder. You, you talk a little louder. M- maybe he's on vacation. This is true. This is what he says. Maybe he's on vacation. Just bring him back. Or maybe he's relieving himself. Quote. And then after hours of no God responding called Baal, the prophets of Baal begin to cut themselves, thinking the blood is going to conjure up or inspire their demonic being to respond to their request. Doesn't. Elijah says, y'all through? He takes his animal sacrifices and puts them on an altar. And then he takes a whole bunch of water and pours it on there. It's seven huge pails of water. A pail is not a, a right. Pitchers, massive 50-gallon pitchers of water. Everybody's saying, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be burned by fire. What is, how is water going to help that? And then on top of that, remember, they're in the middle of a three-and-a-half-year drought. You are taking gold, and you are throwing it on a sacrifice when all of us could be drinking it? Do you know what that water means to us? Have you lost your mind, Elijah? What's wrong with you? Not only are you prohibiting the sacrifice from being burned, but you're taking something we need to survive and giving it away. What's wrong with you? You're throwing it away. Elijah said, do what I said. And he stops, says, oh God, we know that there is no other God but you. So I pray that you would answer and prove that you are who you are. Fire falls from heaven. It burns up the sacrifice, the wet sacrifice. It licks up all the water that had entrenched itself around the sacrifice on the ground, and it burns up the stones. 
That's some serious fire when you can burn rock. Licks it off, goes up into heaven. Everybody goes, oh, wow, God is God. He is really God. He answered, yes. Now, just as a caveat, just a little free tidbit. The sacrifice of the water became the seed from which God would use to pour out a shower a thunderstorm upon the people that they desperately needed. I know sometimes it doesn't make any sense when we're up here talking about what you need to sacrifice, but sometimes you need to sacrifice what you need in order to get what you can't live without. Sometimes. I appreciate anybody who gives anything, but everybody can give out of their surplus. That doesn't mean the gift is somehow any more legit, less legitimate than the, than the gift that's given by sacrifice. I, we're grateful for everything, and God recognizes it. But when you give, unusually so, out of your need, somehow God begins to respond in ways that flood back on you rather than the trickle that you normally experience of natural provision. Right after that, rain came that was so heavy that everybody had to take cover. Sometimes you need to give what you need in order to get what you can't live without. It became a sacrifice. That water became a sacrifice to God, and he poured it out back on his people. Well, Elijah thought, we haven't seen this happen since the days of Solomon when he dedicated the temple, and indeed since the days of Moses when he dedicated the tabernacle. Fire from heaven has only happened two times throughout all of human history. Surely the people are going to repent now. We're going to have a national revival. Everybody's going to come to their senses. They're all going to worship. We're going to kick Baal out. We're going to kick Ahab and Jezebel. If they don't repent, we're going to kick them out. This is going to be the moment. Thank you, Jesus. The next morning, Ahab and Jezebel get up. Elijah gets up. Elijah gets a message from, from Jezebel. Says, I want your head by tomorrow. Go find me Elijah and kill him. It's discouraging when you don't see what you want to see happen. When the thing for which you prayed doesn't come about. That's discouraging. It's even more discouraging when what you have asked for happens and it doesn't make any difference. You have now said, God, do this. He does it. And you think, wow, this is a moment and nothing changes. What was that for, God? I thought I was supposed to be some kind of leaven for our entire nation. And this moment would be that which would accentuate all of my influence. Nothing has changed. What's my point? Elijah had wrapped up all of his life in his ministry. And I beg you, be careful. As important as it is to do right and to see productivity happen for the kingdom... Don't wrap up all of who you are in what you do. Don't do that. Because your, your victories will be a little hollow. God will not allow you to feel the sense of fulfillment that you would normally feel if you had it properly prioritized. I'm grateful for whatever productivity this congregation can give to the community. I am really grateful. I'm grateful for our progress. I'm grateful for what God does. But you know my most important moments of the week are when I can spend time with my creator. I enjoy being defined by him 
and have a, re- a relationship with him. That strums my heartstrings of purpose much more than what I do every day. Having said that, what I do is important. And I realize it's almost indistinguishable sometimes. What did God tell Adam? Soon as God created him, as soon as he created him, he said, get in the garden and work. And so it's almost, it's almost impossible to separate the purpose of your creation from what you do because they are so tied together. And we think that our value is found in our duty. But our value is found in who he has created us to be. And as a result of that, we can do well. We cannot let whether we succeed or fail define who we are. Are you listening to me? If so, Jeremiah was worthless. One of the greatest prophets ever. All he did was say, listen, this is going to be messed up. Y'all are going to make it. I want you to make it, but you don't. That man never experienced any fulfillment. All he got was derision from people daily. The only thing he had was the word of God on the inside of his soul. He said, I love you, boy. Keep telling him. Keep telling him. It is important that you don't let the things that, that you do define you. Elijah let it define him so much that when, Je- when Jezebel said, I want his head, I want him dead by tomorrow, Elijah ran. This prophet who just called down fire from heaven ran. And he ran to Judah. And, and, and he, he sat up under a tree and, and he talked to God. He said, God, I am no better than my father's. I've tried. I mean, I've really worked hard. I've tried to help your people. I've, I've, I've prophesied. I said what you wanted me to say. I did what you wanted me to do. Miracles happened. Fire from heaven. It was amazing. But nothing's changed. So, like, kill me. That's what he says in chapter 19 before we get to the verses upon which I'm concentrating. He says, kill me. Let me die. To which God responds when Elijah goes to bed. He sends an angel, and the angel makes a cake for Elijah. Wakes him up and says, boy, get something to eat. God really cares about you. Even in your darkest moments, there's provision. He understands your emotional state. He knows where we are as human beings and the fragility of our own soul. And rather than rebuking Elijah for his pity party, to which God did not attend, he says, I care about you, boy. He made him a cake. I, I love the Lord, but he never done that for me. <laughs> he never made me a cake in all of my life. He's never made me a cake. Boy, that had to be a cake. I just want to save some, you know, and say, God made this. Taste it. though it does give me some apologetic for desserts. <laughs> Not much of one, just a little. I love desserts. The only reason for the entree is to get to desserts. That's it. That's it. Then God says, get up, eat some more cake. We're gonna, you're going to need it for the journey because we've got some things to do. Now, he knew Elijah was on his way to someplace. Elijah goes to the mount, mountain of God called Horeb, which is where Moses met with God. Why? Because Elijah is saying this to himself. I know somebody who's been, been in this spot before. His name was Moses. He went up on the mountain. 
He talked to God. He got these Ten Commandments. And while he was there, fire and lightning and smoke and vapor and everything consumed the mountain. Moses was in the middle of it. He came down with these Ten Commandments, and everybody in the valley had gone nuts. They said, we don't know what's happened to this Moses fellow. We, we're going to make our own God. He's been up there too long, and this, our own God will lead us. And so by, in, in, in just 40 short days, the Israelites had forgotten everything that the Lord had done for them, and they had made a new God. Moses came down so mad, just upset, despondent. He broke the Ten Commandments, these tablets, upon which God had written. The Lord had inscribed the Ten Commandments with his own finger. And, and Moses came down, and he was so angry, he broke them. Now, I... I, I I, I hate to be critical of anybody who's greater than me. And I'll be looking at the back of Moses' head in glory. He'll be so close to the throne and I'll be so far away. But bruh, those are the only ones God ever inscribed. <laughs> He's never written anything with his own finger in stone. You kind of want to hold on to those. And it's evidenced by the fact that when he went back up to the mountain, God said, you write the next ones. Moses had to chisel out himself. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. God said, I ain't doing that again. I know somebody who's been here before. And he, he came to resolution. I need you to give me resolution. Is there something new you want to do with your people? Is there something I'm supposed to deliver to your folks who are in the proverbial valley of decision acting a fool? going the wrong way. Please help me. I cannot live with the fact that my ministry comes to an end like this with no help to the people. Just a major sign. I want more. God, do something. And the Lord responds with, Elijah, why are you here? I'm not trying to, re I'm not trying to duplicate what we've already done. I'm past that moment. Why are you here? And Elijah had a plan that God wasn't going to co-sign on. And because Elijah had already said, Lord, do away with me, there was something in his soul that had just quit. Now, I don't believe that was supposed to be the end of Elijah's ministry, but it was the end of Elijah's ministry. It didn't mean he didn't do anything else. It meant that now he was going to be moving on and that God was giving his ministry to another. Elijah had lost the motivation in his soul to continue because he was so discouraged. And so the selection process and the searching process began. And there are four points from which I want to take in this passage. One, the search that Elijah had. Two, the selection that Elijah had. And then when he found Elisha, that Elisha had to say goodbye to some folk. And then he had to sacrifice some things. Discipleship is all about following God, but asking other people in the process to help me in the following. Jesus said this to the disciples, you go and make disciples of all nations. I want you to baptize them. I want you to teach them and command them. I want you to help them understand how to follow me. We are commanded to go out and make disciples. Jesus is in the process of moving through us to help us do it, but we are the ones who do so. Now, we are not commanded to go and make disciples of ourselves. Anybody who becomes a disciple of Brett generally is worse than the original. The copy is never as good as the original. 
So I'm not looking for anybody to become a disciple of bread. No, no, no. I need you to become a disciple of Jesus. Now, if anything about my life looks like Jesus and you can use what I have developed and God has developed through me to help you, great. Then that helps you not have to reinvent the wheel. So I'm making a disciple of Christ, not of bread. I'm making a disciple of the kingdom, not of grace covenant. Are you listening to me? Discipleship is about letting people take advantage of your progress by letting them get close enough into your life so that you can correct them, help them, strengthen them, encourage them that they can be better than you ever could be. The selection process was sure as a result of Elijah pretty much quitting. God says this, I got a couple of things. I need you to anoint a couple of kings and a couple of kingdoms, but I want you to go out and find this guy, Elisha. And when you find him, He's going to be your successor. He goes to find Elisha. And this is a passage about which we've already spoken. Elisha runs and he throws his mantle on Elijah. Now the mantle was this cloak that represented the anointing and government and grace on any individual. And when they transferred that to somebody else, the same thing that came on on, on the person who had it originally now comes on the person upon whom they put it. And, and, and think of it like this. When, um, when you go to a graduation ceremony, you know there are people on stage that sit on stage. The people generally who are graduating aren't sitting on stage. But the people who are graduating are sitting on stage. Excuse me, what did I just say? The people who are not graduating are sitting on stage. Those people have black robes just like everybody else, but then they have these other colorful things around their neck. So you've got master's programs, and you have a certain color around their neck. You have PhD programs, and you have a certain color around their neck. you got MD programs, and you have a certain color around their neck. If you have a master's, a PhD, and an MD, you can barely walk. (laughs) There are so many things around your neck that represents the accomplishment that you have received as a result of sitting under somebody else's tutelage. We don't call it discipleship in academic terms, but that's what it is. You have, you have submitted yourself to the institution that helped you become what you could not become had you not submitted yourself. And so we are now conferring upon you the authority to wield what we have granted you. Are you listening to me? That's what the mantle means. And so Elijah was running. He found Elisha and just threw it on him and ran on past. Interesting. Why? We see in the conversation, Elisha says this. Wait a minute. Let me, let, me go, let me go say goodbye to mom and dad. Let me kiss mom and dad and I'll find you. I'll come back. I promise. And Elijah says some interesting words. He says this. What have I done? What have I done? I have, if you will, thrown a mantle on a lot of people. Young people, Tim Johnson, who planted a church down in Orlando, Florida. Dehan Lee, who planted our church in L.A. Daryl Morrison, who planted our church in Phoenix. Donnell Jones, who's downtown, planted our church there. The young men and women who are growing up in our church. I throw my mantle on them. But they are not supposed to just be, be some, some people who are loyal to me because I have given them opportunity. Ultimately, they got to talk to God. I mean, yes, I believe you're called. I think there's something really special in your life, and boy, you're going to change the world. But if things go bad, you've got to understand that you've got to talk to God, not just me. You can't blame me for calling you. He called you. All I did was be the echo. That's all I was. I was just the echo of what he said. 
What Elijah's doing is saying this. Yes, I called you, but if God hadn't, you aren't. What have I done? All I've done is recognize what God, I think, has already done. But if you don't recognize it, what I've done means nothing. You can go on with your life. I'll go find somebody else. I know God said for me to call you, but if you don't have a relationship with him personally that lets you know that you are called, my calling means nothing. And when we disciple people, I beg you, everybody in here not only needs to be discipled, but you need to disciple. This is why you, some of you are saying, wait a minute, I I don't know how to do that. This is why you need to read your Bible every day to learn the things that are most important to your progress so that you can pass them on to somebody else. And this is why you need to become a part of our structure in this church, small groups, Make sure you're a member by going through our membership classes, our men's meetings, our women's meetings. We have other kinds of venues whereby you can get equipped and developed. If you need marriage help, we got that. If you need bereavement help, we got that. It's not just about addressing your issues. It's about making you better. That's what we do. And if you have not participated in that and made Sunday morning pretty much your only offering to God for the week, then all you're doing is getting smarter, not better. Now, it doesn't mean that you aren't taking the principles that are espoused here and trying to make them into something in your own life. I get that. We have a discipleship pulpit here, and you are marginally getting a little better. But I can't disciple you from here because discipleship is not just the delivery of information. I'm not just the mailman. I'm not FedEx. I'm not trying to drop something off at your door. I'm trying to help you be better, which means when you get the information, I'm asking, how you doing with that? Now, I can't help all y'all. I'm not asking you to send me an email to say, Pastor Brett, please disciple me. There are other people who can do this. But the process is helping you. What was Elisha doing? He was dealing in his own soul with what this meant. Boy, he threw this mantle on me, and now I've, I've got to make some decisions. Okay? I know what I need to do. I need to go back and say bye to mom. There are some saying goodbyes that you have to do to this world. You can't let the world just stay with you as you go through the discipleship process. You can't let your own thoughts be the dominant thoughts. You've got to let what the Bible has to say and what people who have been in this thing a little bit longer than you, let what they say be information and, and good fuel for your progress. Remember, your own thoughts got you to the place where you needed to come to church. Your own decision-making got you to the place where you said, I need God. I'm not good at this thing called living. I'm, 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 not, I'm not very successful at it. not doing a good job. So there's more than just repairing your life. There is equipping you. You got to say bye to some stuff, some philosophy, some actions with friends. A mindset that wants to just fit in all the time. you got to say goodbye to some stuff. For Brett, because I'm called to the ministry, I'm not asking anybody to look at this passage and quit your job tomorrow. <laughs> Don't you do that. Do not do that. I'm, I'm saying take these general principles and say, this is how I'm going to prioritize my life with respect to kingdom purpose. I'm going to say goodbye to any influence out there that competes with the influence of Christ in my life. Amen. Jesus said it like this. Anyone who does not hate his mother, father, sister, brother, family, even his own life cannot be my disciple. 
Now you have to understand that the, the Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, which are the three languages that were involved in Jesus' generation, those three languages had an idea of hate that didn't involve vitriol. Some really bad feelings about it that you just had to conjure up in order to make you very actionable and violent. It just simply meant that you chose one thing over another. And when you chose that one thing, it meant that you hated the other. That was the interpretation for anybody else. So if mom and dad tell you, hey, don't you go to church anymore. Don't read your Bible. Eh, Jesus said go to church and read your Bible. You got to say, mom and dad, I love you. Care for you dearly. But I got to follow God. I have to. That's what that means. And mom and dad will probably look at that as hate. You're not following our authority anymore. For Brett, it looked like this. Dad, not only do I, I love Jesus and, you know, I'm following all my heart, but I, I'm not going to be a dentist anymore. My dad was a dentist, and um, he wanted me to follow in his footsteps. Now, it's not so much that he wanted me to be a dentist because that wasn't his first choice. He was a really good baseball player. I mean, great. He was going to be a part of the Phillies in 1947. When they were integrating African-Americans into the major leagues, my dad was a shortstop. He was going to do that. As soon as he got the call from the Phillies, he got a call from the Air Force. And he was drafted. Ruined his baseball career. He then decided, okay, I'm going to go ahead and be a dentist. While in the process, he was with some, some friends of his uh, on leave when he was in the Air Force. And um, a- after he went through dentistry school, and they were at a bar. And it was a $2 beer night or whatever. And one of his buddies bet him because they had their version of karaoke that night. Uh, you get up there and you do a song. Bet him wouldn't, he wouldn't get up there and sing. Dad got up there and sang. Strange story. There was a music producer in the audience said, could you come to Memphis and do a demo? Within four weeks, he had his leave of absence. And he, within six weeks, he had a number two hit in the country. So my dentistry was the last option for my dad. It's not like he enjoyed looking at people's mouths. In fact, who, who, who likes dentists? <laughs> Nobody likes the dentist. Nobody. Why did he want Brett to do this? Because it represented following in a path that he had created for me. And every dad wants their children to at least do that. Not to necessarily do what they do, but to follow the path that they created, whatever that might be. I had to say, Dad, I can't. God's called me to the ministry. I got to say goodbye to dentistry. I was accepted to Meharry Medical School. To me, it meant saying goodbye to a really good career whereby I'd have all of his clients. He'd retire. I'd pay his retirement. I'd have no overhead. I'd make six figures by 1986. I graduate from Meharry in 85. I've got a practice going. Six figures in 86, y'all. That's, that's, that's amazing. That's Mm-hmm. And I was, I was counting what I was losing. I got to go. And to my dad, it seemed like hate. He didn't talk to me about anything other than the weather and sports for five years. Barely called me on my birthday. I love him with all my heart. But he cut me off. My mama thought it was crazy. She, she used to love me, though. I mean, my daddy loved me, but my mom, you know mama's. Mama's just, well, baby, he'll be okay. He'll be okay. <laughs> You'll be okay. Dad is a different. We're just different. And I'm not mad at my dad. Great end of the story. My dad winds up being sick. I care for him in the last three years of his life. He becomes a part of my church. 
The ministry he hated helped save him. He got baptized in my tub. He was sitting on the front row while I was preaching when we had 50 people. In heaven, I can't wait to have a reunion. It's going to be great. My point is I had to say bye. Painful. Painful. I don't know what your bye looks like, but at some point you're going to have to say bye to things in the world and cleave to the things of Christ. That's what it means to be a disciple. And his bye looked like this. Okay, I'm going to take my oxen, the ones behind whom I'm plowing, and I'm going to sacrifice them, and I'm going to use the implements of my, of, of my trade as a kindling in order to burn the sacrifice, and I'm inviting all my friends to let them see what my sacrifice looks like. <laughs> it was public. He allowed his friends to share in what his sacrifice should be. Do your friends know anything about how much you love Jesus? Is there anything public about your commitment? Are you one of those, well, I, I don't, I don't want to push my religion on anybody. I'm just a private person like that. It's amazing how unprivate you are when it comes to your kids. Boy, you're sitting on a plane, you begin a conversation with somebody, and they want to know who you are. You get your phone out. My free kid. Right there. You're so proud of them. Show your wife, grandmama, everybody gets in the deal. I don't know why in the world you're so ashamed of Jesus. Is there anything about your life that is public? I'm not asking you to walk into your office holding your Bible high and say, we have Bible study today. (laughs) Today we are having Bible study. If you do that, you're stupid. (laughs) You heard it first here, stupid. But I am saying that you ought to have some influence that allows everybody else to know who you are so that I, I can be able to ask your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, What do you think about this person? Are they a Christian? And their response ought to be, best I've seen. I don't even go to church, but if I did, I want to be like them. How public is your leaving of the world? He burned the implements of his trade. Now, when you had a, when you had, most people, average, the average uh, farmer generally used donkeys or mules with which to plow because they were cheaper. When you had oxen, they're three times as strong as a mule or a donkey, which meant you could put multiple plows behind them. You ride on the back, have a platform there, and the plows go deeper because they're stronger, and you could put more more there. The version of this today, a combine or a tractor, And even though it probably didn't cost as much, the value was the same. Today, if you want to buy a really good tractor to do your plowing and have all the change outs for the implements of what it means to sow after you plow and then harvest that, boy, it's going to cost you $150,000. What that man did, he took that which was valuable to him in his career. He said, I sacrifice it to you, oh God. I'm not asking you to quit your job tomorrow. Please don't do that. What I am saying is, Lord, my career is yours. How I progress is your will. 
I'm not going to go underhand. I'm not going to use somebody else's demise in order to make it my springboard. I'm going to figure out a way to make sure that I do this in a way that glorifies you and I can testify about what you do in my career. I'm not going to strike some shady deals. I'm not going to do things that are illegal in order to gain a buck. I'm going to give my career to you, Lord. I sacrifice it. Everything that I am, all that I am is yours. That's what, what it meant to say goodbye. And he gave it all. And he said, I'm with you. When we talk about being a disciple, there's nothing left for you. You have been identified now with the person you've chosen to follow. There's nothing left of Brett. The old Brett doesn't exist anymore. I have enveloped my entire life around the kingdom. It's the way I do family. It's the way I do church. It's the way I live every day prioritization of making sure that I do nothing to bring shame to his name. And I beg you not to marginalize these comments as saying, well, you're a pastor. That's what you ought to do. I'm a Christian. And because I'm a Christian, I can function well as a pastor. And without trying to be morbose, I know a whole lot of pastors that aren't very good Christians. I'm first a believer in Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, I don't want to do anything that brings shame to his name. And I want to do everything that glorifies him. Am I perfect? Far from it. All you got to do is ask the front row right here. But I'm working at it every day of my life to honor him and glorify him so that nobody ever has to stumble over breath to get to Jesus. They just walk right through him. Your life needs to be enveloped by the one you're following. Elisha's was so enveloped by Elijah's life that he almost did the exact same miracles. You look at his life, almost the exact same. The only save was the fire from heaven. Everything else he did and duplicated it. What about your life looks like what Jesus did? What about your mouth sounds like what Jesus said? What about your thought life? Things like what Jesus thought. People ought not see you very much. They ought to see Jesus so. Let's pray. God, I'm asking for your grace and mercy. Help us, please, to, to be like you. To be like you. You've created us in your image, and we are so far away from that that it takes discipline on our part to obey every day so that we can just be what we're created to be.